in Pinellas Park, W262CP Bayonet Point. Brought to you by Moss Nissan. Simply the best Nissan portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. I remember being challenged about this years ago, and here's my answer. We affirm that although the New Testament teaches a shared leadership, it does not teach that there must be a shared pulpit. People assume that they're the same things. They're not. Shared leadership and shared pulpit are not identical. They are not synonymous concepts. There are those who argue that the New Testament shows evidence of various forms of church government. But I have never found a New Testament example of any church government other than that led by a group of elders. Peter exhorted the elders among the readers of his first epistle to tend the flock that is in your charge, is what he said. The elder role is pastoral, but is not necessarily a preaching role. So we see that the New Testament churches each had more than one elder and that the elders cared for the people in their charge. But we don't see that they were all preachers. Hello and welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We are in the middle of a series of studies about the nature of the church. If you're just joining us in this series, stick around. I'll have information at the end of today's broadcast about how you can get caught up on what you've missed. Or maybe you've been with us right along and just want to review or share what you've heard. Many churches refer to their pastor as the minister. And indeed, the pastor is a minister, but he's not the minister. Every Christ follower is or should be ministering. Many of us, including yours truly, call the man doing the preaching pastor. That is accurate as far as it goes, but he's more than that. Each church congregation needs several pastors, men who will shepherd their fellow sheep, mentor them, teach them, encourage them, and help them follow Christ more closely. The preacher does that as well, but he has the added assignment of teaching from the pulpit each Sunday. He has no more authority than any other elder, but he has more responsibility and more influence, and therefore tends to be a leader among equals. Our main text for the series is in Matthew chapter 16, but in just a moment, we'll turn to Galatians 2, if you're following in your Bible. And now here's Pastor Steve. Now, before we leave this truth about the church being ruled through a plurality of elders, I want to address an important issue that I don't think I've ever really addressed at Lakeside. Well, I did it in the early service, but prior to that, I don't think I, I've ever done this. And so now that I really have your attention... I want to address this so there's no misunderstanding about this because at some point, some perceptive person at Lakeside is going to wonder then why I am in the pulpit each week if the New Testament teaches a plurality of elders. In other words, they may put two and two together and come and say to me, listen, Steve, if the New Testament teaches that all elders are equal in authority with no one elder dominating the others, then what are you doing in the pulpit each Sunday? Shouldn't a true plurality of elders have a shared pulpit with each elder having the opportunity to preach on a regular basis? Well, I'm glad this came up so I can address this. First of all, understand this. The concept of a plurality of elders who are all equal in authority does not eliminate the need 
for certain leaders in the church to be more visible and even more prominent in their influence, not authority, but in their influence than others. Listen to what Alexander Strzok, who who wrote an excellent book on elders, stressing, I might add, the plurality of elders. Listen to what he had to say about this. Even he recognizes the importance and the necessity for certain elders to be more prominent than others. He wrote, Although the elders act jointly and share equal responsibility in overseeing the flock, all are not equal in their gifts, knowledge, leadership ability, or dedication. Thus, one or more of the elders will naturally stand out as the motivator or leader among the others. This is what the Romans, he writes, refer to as first among equals. In other words, he's saying that even among numerous elders, there will always be certain elders who are going to stand out as more prominent in their leadership. And folks, you can see this principle of leaders among leaders played out even amongst the apostles in their ministry of leading the early church. Think about this. All of the apostles were certainly equal in authority, Peter included. No one apostle was placed in a position of superiority over the others. Peter may have been used more than the others in the early days of the church, but he wasn't placed in a superior position to the others, nor did any apostle have a title or rank above the others. And yet, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, we read about three men who were leaders among the leaders. Let me have you turn there. Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. Now, Galatians is a book all about justification by grace through faith. Paul is defending this, that salvation does not come by, by works. And in this passage, he is affirming that his message that he gave to the Gentiles is the same message that has been given to the Jewish people, the gospel. And he wants to affirm that he's one with the other leaders in the early church. So notice Galatians chapter 2 verse 9. He says, and recognizing the grace that has been given to me, James and Cephas, Cephas is another name for Peter, and John, who were reputed to be, note this, pillars gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now, what is he talking about? He mentions three, three men here. He refers, first of all, to James. He's not referring to the apostle James, the brother of John. He was the first apostle martyred. He was martyred in the book of Acts. We read about this by Herod. He's referring to James, the half-brother of Jesus, who became a believer after the resurrection. Then he mentions Cephas, or Peter, Cephas being the Aramaic word for Peter. And then he mentions John, meaning the apostle John. But notice what he says about these three men, James, Peter, and John. He said they were pillars, meaning pillars of the church in Jerusalem, meaning Also, that these three men were the most prominent among all the pastors in leading and supporting. That's what a pillar does, supporting the church in Jerusalem. Paul just takes these three men and says they're more prominent. They are pillars of the church. And there are a number of places where the same James is mentioned in the New Testament in a way that indicates that he was more visible, more influential as a leader than 
all the other leaders. I want to show you this because this is important. Acts chapter 12. We'll look at Acts for a little while and just see how James stands out. Not even an apostle, but certainly an influential leader. In Acts chapter 12, the context says Peter has just been released miraculously by an angel from prison. He goes to one of the uh, groups meeting. The church was meeting in a place and he appears to them and shows him that shows them that he's been delivered from prison. Notice what he says to them. Verse 17 of Acts 12. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison. And he said, report these things, notice, to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. He didn't just say, tell the brethren, but tell James, the recognized influential, prominent leader of the brethren. See the same thing in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, there is a uh, major debate over do Gentiles have to live under the Mosaic law and then believe in Jesus to be saved? And this Peter speaks up, Paul speaks up, others speak up and say, no, salvation is not by keeping the Mosaic law in any way. It's by faith in Christ. It's really by the grace of God. And then notice, after all is said and done, chapter 15, verse 13, notice James speaks. He says, after they had stopped speaking, James answered saying, brethren, listen to me. This is significant because we see James functioning here as what we would call the chairman and spokesman for the entire church. He's more prominent than anyone else. And one other place in Acts chapter 21. Verse 18, we read this. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. Why doesn't it just say all the elders? Because James was obviously prominent as an elder. Now, here's the point I want you to see. Just as James played a key role in the church at Jerusalem as the first among equals, so the New Testament in principle teaches that some elders will be more prominent in their local churches and be more visible than other elders by virtue, note this, by virtue of the fact that they will have a special giftedness in the area of teaching the Word of God. And I want you to see this. First Timothy chapter 5, an important passage of Scripture. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Note this. Paul says, the elders who rule well, this is 1 Timothy 5.17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. The double honor he's referring to is financially remunerate them, make sure that they're paid for their labors. And we know that because he goes on to say that in verse 18. But the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially, watch this, those who work hard at preaching and teaching. While all elders, we know this from other passages, all elders must have the ability to teach God's word. According to Paul right here, some elders will specifically be called and equipped by God to work hard at preaching and teaching. Not all of them, but some, he said. And those who do, make sure they're, they're supported by you so they're free from their secular Jobs. In other words, there are certain elders who are going to have a more prominent role in the church because of their work of teaching the congregation the Word of God. 
And that role at Lakeside falls upon me as the pastor teacher of this congregation. Now, you may not realize this, but every elder at Lakeside has some type of a teaching ministry. There is no elder who, has, uh, uh, who is isolated from teaching the Word, word of God. Now, they have different uh, uh, arenas in which they teach. Some teach a Sunday school class. Uh, others teach a home fellowship. Some teach a Sunday school class and a home fellowship. There are some who have small group Bible studies, but all of them are active in teaching the Word of God. But the task of preaching two full sermons a week to the entire congregation is my responsibility, and that's the reason I am referred to as pastor-teacher. Now, this doesn't mean that as pastor-teacher I have more authority than any other elder at Lakeside. I think that my longevity here and my high visibility as the church's main Bible teacher have uh, given me a great deal of influence, but not more authority. And not more right to dictate my will above the other leaders. In fact, the New Testament condemns that kind of a dictatorial leader who asserts himself as the sole ruler of the church. Where does it condemn that? In a little known book called 3 John. Let's turn to the back of the New Testament. Right before the book of Revelation, you will see that tiny book called Jude. And right before Jude, you'll see another tiny book called 3 John. It means that this is John's third letter. He wrote the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation, and he wrote three letters. The first letter we call 1 John, 2nd, 2nd John, 3rd, 3rd John. Not particularly creative ways of naming these letters, but you get the, the gist. And the letter revolves around hospitality, having love towards people you, you don't know. And I want to read to you just a small letter. I want to read to you verses 5 and, and through 8 and then stop, set the scene, and then tell you the problem here. In verse 5 we read, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. And they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of of God, for they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men, so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. John is commending these people for opening their homes, their hearts, and supplying material goods and shelter for traveling missionaries. He said they went out in Christ's name. They took nothing from unbelievers. They never appealed to unbelievers to support them. So you know what? You're doing it. That's right. You were hospitable. You loved them. That's the thing to do. But there's a problem. And verses 9 and 10 tell us this problem. Not everybody did this. He says in verse 9, now this is an apostle writing with apostolic authority representing Christ. But notice, verse 9, I wrote something to the church. So prior to this, John had written something else, which we don't have. But Diotrephes, that's the name of a man, notice this, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. Now, that's, that's almost unbelievable. You have a leader in the church named Diotrephes who asserted himself. He loves to be first. He didn't accept what John said. John is an apostle. You don't have any right to not. He speaks in an inspired manner. It's as if the Lord himself were there, was there speaking through him. And in fact, that is exactly 
the situation. He says in verse 10, For this reason, if I come, I'll call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. He accused John with wicked language. Not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. This man was such a tyrant, such a dictator, that he wouldn't even allow missionaries into the church. He kicked them out. He spoke wickedly of John. He rejects his authority. John said, says, when I get there, I'll, I'll deal with him. But what I want you to see is that this man loves to be first, meaning that this man asserted himself above all others in the church as their domineering, overbearing, and self-proclaimed leader with so much authority that he actually rejected the apostolic authority of John. So understand that just because I'm in the pulpit on most Sundays doesn't mean that we believe that the Bible teaches a form of church government in which the primary pastor leader in the church towers over all the other elders in making decisions and asserting his own personal agenda. What we do believe is that the scriptures teach a form of church government in which a pastor teacher ministers alongside of all the other elders and serves the congregation by primarily working hard at teaching them the word of God. And so going back to our original question, meaning in light of a shared church leadership, why am I in the pulpit most Sundays? Listen closely what I'm about to say, because I remember being challenged about this years ago, and here's my answer. We affirm that although the New Testament teaches a shared leadership, it does not teach that there must be a shared pulpit. People assume that they're the same things. They're not. Shared leadership and shared pulpit are not identical. They are not synonymous concepts. Various elders have various church responsibilities, and the responsibility for teaching from the pulpit belongs to one of the elders, known in our church as the pastor-teacher. Now, having said that, Let me balance it by saying a church may choose to have a shared pulpit amongst its elders. That certainly wouldn't be wrong. It doesn't violate Scripture. Many churches do it. But it has been my observation that those churches who do have a shared pulpit, and those are the churches that I ministered to um, when I'm in, in Italy. They come out of a movement called the Brethren Movement. But it's been my observation that those churches that do have a shared pulpit with different elders taking turns teaching the congregation only weaken the church. I don't see it as a, as a strengthening of the church because there is no continuity to their teaching. They don't give the full picture, the whole counsel of God. And usually very little sermon preparation since most of the elders have secular jobs and just don't have the time to study for a full-length sermon. And quite frankly, not every elder in a church has been equipped by God to teach on a regular basis from the pulpit. They ought to be able to teach in other contexts, but the pulpit's a different animal. It can be intimidating. It can be very demanding. It's just not a shared leadership. It's not the same thing as a shared pulpit. And I, I don't think it's healthy for the church. And so the first Understand that the first essential truth about elders that I want us to see is that Jesus rules his church 
than through a plurality of elders rather than a single pastor with a dynamic personality. And these multiple elders, they all share responsibility in leading the church as a pastoral team. However, plurality of elders is just part of the picture when it comes to the way Jesus rules his church. I said there are three essential truths that emerge about leadership from the New Testament. The second essential truth about elders that comes from the pages of the New Testament scriptures that these men must be spiritually qualified to be leaders in the church because that's the way Jesus builds his church. He builds it so that the men who lead must be godly in character. In other words, Christ has designed his church to be ruled through men who meet the highest spiritual standards set down in the scriptures. Where are these standards found? They're found in two particular places. Number one is 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. They both list about 20, 21 uh, distinct qualifications of godly character for elders. We're going to look at them briefly. And I mean briefly, going based on 1 Timothy 3. There are other passages or other messages, I should say, in which I've dealt with this in more of an in-depth study. You're, you're free to get those messages. I'm just going to give you a taste of it. But before we do that, I want you to understand that elders are selected based on these standards and nothing else. No other criteria. That's important to understand because not every church follows that. There are some churches who select their elders based on their success in the business world, figuring if they're good in the business world, they'll be good in the church world. There are other churches who select their their men, their leaders, based on their social standing in the community. They have clout in the community. They're respected in the community. They'll give the church respectability. Others who select their leaders based on longevity in the church. Hey, he's a charter member. How how do we not have him? Or it's a popularity contest. Or he's wealthy. That'll attract wealthy people to the church. Let's, Let's have him on the board. Listen, when a church selects its leaders based on anything other than godliness, she puts herself in great danger and will suffer for it. This is not a side issue. This is very important. You bypass the godly qualifications for elders, the church will suffer. The church will be in danger. Why? Why? Watch this. It's a simple but profound truth. Why it's necessary to follow what Paul lays down about godly qualifications for leaders. Because a church congregation will always become just like its leaders. That's why. That's why. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 6.40. He said a pupil, meaning a student or a disciple, is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained by his teacher, will be like his teacher. That's just a general truism. You will eventually resemble, in terms of character qualities and attitudes, the man that you sit under week by week in learning from him. And in our church, that that means the full-orbed leadership. That's why it's so important to have godly men who teach us in the church. Because if you don't have godly men, you will. If they are ungodly, you'll take on their ungodly traits. This may seem crazy, but I don't think Satan is very interested in closing down churches. What I think he aims to do is make them ineffective for Christ. 
And one of the best ways to accomplish that is to get churches to put wealthy, powerful men on their elder boards without making godliness the primary criteria. I've seen it often enough that I could almost say it's a guaranteed formula for stifling spiritual growth to appoint leaders without considering their faith, their conduct, and their passion to disciple others. You've been listening to Verse by Verse with Pastor Teacher Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. You can visit Lakeside at 1893 Sunset Point Road or stop in at the website, lakesidechapel.com. Another web address to keep in mind is versebyverseradio.org. You can find information there about Verse by Verse, about Pastor Steve, and about our philosophy of giving. If not for generous listeners like you, we would not be able to fund these broadcasts. So if the Lord is giving you a nudge in that direction, check out the website and click the Giving tab. We try to make giving easy, and we deeply appreciate our friends who pray and give. That's versebyverseradio.org. I'm your announcer, Jerry Peterson. The role of an elder is not one to be taken or given lightly. There is a tremendous responsibility involved along with a daily burden for the spiritual and physical welfare of the people you care for. You find out about things in people's lives that are not common knowledge, things that can really they can break your heart.